0: If there's a title to today's lecture, it's Naked Waiting. Perhaps by the end of the lecture that will make sense. One of the things that's important, particularly for new people, is that you don't have to believe anything. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamental groundwork of Zen practice. You don't have to believe anything, except you have to believe that. (laughs) (coughs) <laughs> <coughs> Under those terms, if there's a teaching that's put out and you get irritated, aggravated, and annoyed, it's because there's something you believe that's contrary to what the teachings are saying. Are we still together here? Yes. yes. You don't have to believe anything. The teachings are not presented to instigate an argument. If you want to have an argument, have your lawyer contact my lawyer and they can settle it. But this is not the place to have an argument. In the dictionary, patience means willingness to wait a long time for something to happen. But from a Zen point of view, it means that you bear your existence. Now that should stimulate a lot of argument. Okay. (laughs) Which which bear are we talking about? Not the one you're thinking of. Since you opened your mouth, I'll use you as an example. (laughs) Last week, Dean shared about how that song by Leonard Cohen, Did I Really Love You, he saw from a different point of view. It wasn't, did I ever love you? It was, did I ever love you? I said to him today, that's the beginning of your Zen practice. Everything prior to that was preparation for Zen practice. Zen practice isn't concerned about what's going on out here? Is concerned with what's going on in here, your reaction to what's going on out there. Hmm? In most cases what's going on out there stimulates an argument, you want to prove opposition and opposition to opposition. If somebody calls me an idiot and I get up all riled up and upset. Would you ever call me an idiot? You're an idiot. Now if that... You're a pain in the ass. <laughs> if that gets me upset, he's not the problem. The problem is that in here I still believe somehow, somewhere that I'm an idiot. Why are you laughing at? This ain't funny, this is serious. That was incredibly tasty. You should be able to call me an idiot, and it should not in any way upset me. Unless I believe that somewhere in there I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm. You following this? Yes. Yes. That's, I follow it, but I don't really believe what? it. What? I follow it, but I don't really believe it. I said you don't have to believe anything, <laughs> and I also said you don't have to argue. I don't have to. <laughs> yes, I know you. Don't have to. But you do adore it. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. One of the things that is something that you can't argue about, as children, there's a lot of data that's imprinted on us by our parents. Hmm? Anybody want to argue with that one? Jody. Not at the moment. Not yet. There are Zen centers in Japan where argumentative students are taken outside and beaten. We might institute that here. Those imprints are very difficult to get rid of. Hmm? Traditionally, they talk about killing your parents. I don't like to use that term. I think the term cutting the umbilical cord is much more accurate. The interesting things about umbilical cords is they stretch a long distance. Just moving out of the house does not mean you've cut the umbilical cord. You could move from your house to Australia, and the umbilical cord will go right along with you. That cord has to be cut if you're to find any kind of peace of mind and serenity. Until that cord is cut, all your thinking, all your actions are influenced by the way you were raised. If you want to do what it says in the Bible, to honor your mother and father... You cannot do that until you cut the umbilical cord. Because it's not coming from a true space. It's coming from a space that you were learned, that you were taught. Mm-hmm. Important issues. If you come from a house where there's a lot of chaos, a very strong possibility that you're going to become addicted to chaos. And you're going to create chaos every place you go to perpetuate the family of origin. Hmm? We often hear the term a dysfunctional family I've yet to find a family that isn't." And all that stuff that went on in the house has become part of you, part of your personality, but not part of your true self. And the intriguing thing about this is we get a perverse pleasure out of continuing that way of life. Zen is about experiencing liberation, total liberation. At that moment you can sing and dance and play naked in the rain. That was something we used to talk about a lot when we first started here. To learn to sing and dance and play naked in the rain. You never got that teaching as a child. Mm -hmm. last night at dialysis I had a young girl new a nurse and she was having a lot of trouble putting the needles in when that goes on it's very painful there's some nurses that put it in you don't feel a thing there's some nurses uh, your hair falls out So I said, I think you should stop and take a breath and relax. You're all upset and you're all nervous about sticking that needle in my arm, and I'm paying a high price. Stop and relax. She said, I I wasn't taught that. I said, I see that. I see that. (laughs) But I recommend it because you're doing some crazy stuff to my arm. Well, eventually it did settle down, and then the needles did go in. She had tried several times to get it in, and then when she relaxed, it just went nice and easy. That's an analogy. She was relying on her training to do it right, and she was doing it wrong. It's like when we used to have tea here. You give somebody the new job of going around to each person and giving them tea and it was like a traumatic experience to pour a cup of tea. All you're doing is pouring some tea into a freaking cup. What are you getting all upset about? Well, I got to do it the right Zen way, my God. What happens if I don't do it right? Relax. Take it easy. There's an inner wisdom that can carry you through all these crazy situations. That's what these teachings are all about. There is innately this inner wisdom that can carry you through all these bizarre situations that we come up against. In AA, they have the 11 promises. And the 11th promise is, we will intuitively know how to deal with situations that used to baffle us. One of the things that happens here in Zen practice is we develop our intuition. Suzuki always stressed the fact that you should bring your intuition to full maturity. Hmm? If we could give a secondary name to Zen practice, it's ego detoxification. And for those of you who have ever gone through the detoxification, it's a very upsetting period. You've had this way of life, and now you're moving over here, and that shift is very upsetting. Mm -hmm. Somehow, this was our natural state, and through a variety of reasons, we've got into this condition. And this has become natural to us. We think this is the way it should be. But something begins to happen that gets us irritated and realize change has to take place. And the process of changing this back to this is very difficult. Mm -hmm. There's lots of resistance. This wants to stay in place. But this is your natural state. Mm -hmm. So we have all these various techniques. Mm -hmm. The primary one is sitting. There's two schools, Rinzai and Soto. Rinzai emphasizes koan practice. My teacher was absolutely, totally dedicated to koan practice. He used to talk about Soto practice as stupid. But there's a point in this situation where You have to learn to sit and do nothing. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting and striving difficultly with a lot of effort to become enlightened, it's never going to happen. The more you pursue it, the further away it goes. Mm -hmm. Just sit for no purpose, which is totally opposite everything we've been taught. Get a good grade, get your college degree, get a good job, get a good wife, if there's any of them left, I don't know. (laughs) It's always about acquiring, which is what the Buddha taught us, that all suffering comes from this desire. If I had been around at the time he was there, I would say, don't emphasize desire, emphasize ignorance. Desire comes out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. Talking about the fact that one of the primary foundations of what this practice is about is developing and bringing to full maturity your intuition. I don't know of any place you can go to get involved with that other than through meditation. Harvard doesn't offer Intuition 101. The only place I know that you can get encouragement to practice this developing intuition is through meditation, whatever school. Hmm? Sit and do nothing. And that intuition just comes up of its own accord. You don't have to go through a big training process. Mm. Or if there's any training involved, it's to get away from your head. Zen is always about getting down here, down into the horror. Mm. That's where you're going to find this intuitive sense of how to deal with problems. What do you say to all this? Earlier in the lecture you said um, to bear your existence. Thank you for coming back to that. I don't like that. (laughs) To me that the way I interpret that is tolerate your existence. That's very limiting to me, at least the way it sounds to me, perhaps embrace your existence? and You can't love yourself if you just tolerate yourself. I think it has to be deeper than that. Well, that information came from this book, Mountain Record, which is (coughs) part of the Zen Mountain Monastery. And I brought this out specifically for that reason. Willingness to wait a long time for something to happen. But from a Zen view, it means that you're willing to bear your existence. Does, does it also mean to bear witness to your existence? Not necessarily to bear it like a burden, but to almost... You're almost standing back in a way and seeing it with with your awareness, rather than it being difficult. Remember we started this whole thing stressing the fact that you don't have to believe anything, which of course would imply the other side of the coin is present. You can believe anything. But while we're in that state of believing, hmm? for example, right now I do not believe that I'm holding a book in my hand. I don't believe that. I know it empirically. I have it there. I'm holding it. I see it. I feel it. I smell it. I read from it. I don't believe it. I know it empirically. What we're talking about isn't something that's going to be resolved intellectually. It has to be resolved empirically. Mm-hmm. And then all that different opinion comes down to the point of seeing things clearly. Mm-hmm. I had a nice little heated discussion with my friend Anthony. again. Again. (laughs) And I said to him, Anthony, you're fighting clarity. You have a life view that you've learned from your parents, and you still cling to it. Mm? And it's a view that has lots of chaos. And that's your perverse pleasure, this chaos. He's always in chaos, always creating drama, because he's still attached to the family way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And I said, what you need to do is sit quietly and develop some clarity. And so he woke up this morning with all sorts of infection in his eyes. That's why he's not here, mm-hmm. which sort of says... That's true. If you want to do what's recommended in the Bible to honor your parents, cut the umbilical cord. If you want to do what Zen practice is encouraging, sit still, be very quiet, and let your intuitive wisdom come back into play. We don't learn that in school. There's nothing talks about intuition. And so it's just sort of put away as if it's insignificant. And yet it's the root of liberation. If your intuition isn't working, there's not going to be liberation. What do you say to that? The way that I understood bear your existence is to bear yourself, to bear your soul. I didn't see it as as a burden, but more of a release. Isn't it fascinating? There's an actress. I can't think of her name right now. Tony told me this story. She said, when I do a Broadway play, if there's 200 people in the audience, there's 200 versions of the play. Mm? If the Pope is giving a lecture to 90 cardinals, there's 90 versions of what the Pope said. Mm? If I'm giving a lecture and there's 10 people, there's 10 versions of that lecture. Mm? Which one is the right one? Mine. Mm. No (laughs) mine. Exactly. (laughs) Now we begin to see, now we begin to see why things are so screwed up. <coughs> I have no argument with, with Linda. Her view of it is absolutely correct. Well, the trouble with you right now is you're talking from an enlightened position. Impossible. You have to be very careful as a teacher, the way you treat your teacher, because your students are going to watch the way you treat your teacher, and they're going to say, oh, that's the way to treat a teacher. I hope so. Uh, I do too. I do too. Because of all the students, you have been the most respectful. You all should treat me with the utmost respect. And if you argue with that, it's because you don't understand the full meaning of that. You should treat me with absolute respect because I'm just like you. In other words, I'm saying you should treat yourself with great respect. Not treating yourself with respect is the essence of all the suffering. I desire to maintain my family of origin. My father died at 96, still trying to live that way. He never found his life. Treat me with great respect out of the respect you have for yourself. That was a good ending. I do have a question. So before we end, if I may. And it's just a simple little playful thing my brain was doing and I wanted to get your your take on it. Two weeks ago you told the story of Bodhidharma and his first student cutting off his arm. Mm. Last week you told us about the Cohen. What is the sound of one hand clapping? How could he do that? What is the correlation between cutting off the arm and the sound of one hand clapping? Mm. If you're going to ask difficult questions, I'm not going to play. I remember Baker Roshi doing that once. He had his books all set up and he opened up for questions. Somebody asked a question. He says, if you're going to ask questions like that, I'm leaving. They're too difficult. (laughs) The story about Bodhidharma, whether we know it's true or not, it's talking about serious commitment to the practice. Hmm? And it takes quite a while. Mike wants to take his vows. When he came in, how many years ago? Three or four years. very early on he said I want to take my vows and I put up an obstacle and he didn't push any further and that was perfect practice now after years of practice he's saying I want to take vows and it's coming from a much more substantial a deeper place mm-hmm. when we talk about this story of Bodhidharma's student cutting off his arm and throwing it in. We're talking about a sincere commitment. Mm-hmm. This guy's saying, don't get involved with this stuff. This is really serious life and death situation. Don't come in here playfully. Come in here with your eyes wide open and see what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. You're going to try and crack the shell of the strongest thing on earth, which is your ego. You're going to have to give up a lot of things you treasure as precious and just let them go. Mm-hmm. So that's the meaning of chopping off the arm. Bodhidharma's waiting to see if this guy was really sincere. I'm not asking anybody to chop off their arm. (laughs) But I am saying, take a good look at what you're doing here. This is not, there's a Zen center in Japan that says, if you are not concerned with the issue of life and death, there's no reason to come in here. Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And if we follow this all the way out, Eventually you come to face your fear of death, Mm -hmm. and the only way out is through. If you find these different human emotions coming up, the idea isn't to get rid of them so that you can be some sort of great Zen practitioner. If you're sitting and these emotions come out, you go into them and through them. And if the fear of death comes up, you go into it and through it and you find out that this thing called death isn't quite what we think it is. Either it's death that there's nothing, it's a big black zero, or it's death and you have a choice of heaven or hell. If you go to it and look at it directly, you're going to find something different altogether, which will radically alter your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. If you see this thing called death is a big boogeyman that has no substance, you're going to have to look at the way you're approaching life altogether different. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to give up all your addictions. The nice thing I like about this center is that there is a general agreement amongst everyone that they have some sort of addiction. If it isn't drugs or alcohol or whatever, there is some addiction that you're clinging to. In most cases, it's the family of origin. Hmm. That's the way you were brought up. That's the way as a child you believe was the right way to do things and you've perpetuated that. Mm -hmm. That has to be broken. Now, what about this issue of you cut off your arm but you also have this koan that says what's the sound of one hand clapping? I think that sort of displays itself as accurately as can be. Here's a man with Only one arm. What's the sound of one hand clapping? He's giving a good demonstration of that. He doesn't have two hands. He only has one. Now that Cohen has become twisted. People have made a party game out of it. But I've revived it by simply saying, here's the answer. This is the answer to the Cohen. What's the sound of one hand clapping? There's the answer. What is that sound? What is the sound that's made with one hand clapping? So now I've brought it back to life. Thank you all. May I respectfully remind you, life and death are of extreme importance. Time swiftly passes and opportunity is lost. Each of us must awaken. Awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. Sangha relationships become complete. May my Zen center flourish. So...